Hello and welcome to a very special holiday episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Ohatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is one of the triplets who helped Amy Archer win her Pulitzer. I am the Adam Glass, and I am a triplet with my cousin Daryl and my other cousin Daryl. We're, we're identical cousins. They're, by the way, they're not. They're not from the same family. Every my mom's side of the family, uh, every male born, my mom decided to buck this trend, but every male born on my mom's side of the family is named Daryl. It goes back to the year 1250 when they were made. Uh, uh, I'm referencing a thing right now, and I don't want to have to explain what okay, I'm referencing, so fine. let's just move yeah. on. I uh, assumed it was a sort of, I assumed the triplet phenomenon here was some sort of similar to like no. carcification <laughs> or dendrification, where like I'm every Dar- person named Daryl in your family just ends up looking <laughs> identical and being genetically identical, despite being no. from different branches of the family. No, I actually am going to explain what I'm okay, referencing because I find it fascinating. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, there was a. Uh, uh, German police shut down what was a right-wing coup attempt. Yes, formative. yeah, I remember that. Uh, and the guy they wanted to install as the new uh, emperor of Germany. Oh, yeah, okay. His name was Heinrich, and his name is Heinrich 18, I think, 16, maybe 13, because every male in his family since 1200 has been named Heinrich, uh, and they... they uh, it's Heinrich one, Heinrich two, Heinrich three in order of birth every century, and then they reset at the next century. <laughs> so that's some wild shit, though, man. So he's the twentieth century's Heinrich thirteen or whatever it is. Wow, <laughs> it's, it's all it's all insane. Anyway, uh, Jonathan Haight is joining us for our holiday episode. Say hi, Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan does the music, and we're Who's always happy to have him around, not I, just for the music. I do it every single episode. He does he does? Yeah, I have him. It's brand recorded. new. He's going to do it live. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I got to admit, you weren't our first choice for, <laughs> for our Christmas guest. <laughs> Dang. Well, that is harsh. Uh, whoa. Damn, and I'm gonna be man. Harsh. Now. We, we wanted no, nothing originally, to do with you, but we were forced into it by no, circumstances no, we love beyond you. our control. We love Jonathan. We're happy to have him. But we I'm were okay with being on the B-Squad. Yeah, we were originally going to watch a different movie with a different uh, set of guests. Uh, a movie particularly geared for those, for those other guests. You could even but, say that that movie and those guests were for... First choice, top, yeah. you know, first draft. Well, yeah. the weird thing is that wasn't even first draft because for the last God, six we've months... we've had so many conversations been, about this over the last... Like, we've been talking about doing a different movie for six months oh and then gosh. two weeks ago I, I discovered... I don't know why he did this. <laughs> I, I don't this understand what happened. Thought, because we never would have found anyone to I guess with us I disagree. I think movie. we could what, have. Now, movie? we're not going to reveal what I'm that movie edit is. this out. Not on air, but I will tell Jonathan. Okay. We talked for six months about doing... So, so originally, um, my, our guests last Christmas were my roommate Ben and, and our friend Stephen, who's a, a longtime guest on the show. And Ben's been on quite a few our times by this point, too. Our guests last Christmas were uh, Ben and un- Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, Stephen broke his arm. And, In the uh, worst and, possible way, it's worth and, noting. Yeah, in a really terrible way. Simply having <laughs> Stephen's a broken arm. <laughs> it's it's it? truly a holiday miracle episode. We're going to break yeah, into song um, every time. I think that's the opposite of a miracle, actually. Well, not him arm, breaking but, his uh, arm, us breaking into song yeah. all the time. I see. I see. Anyway, are, are, they, so, are those similar things? Yeah. Breaking into song and breaking <laughs> one's limbs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, be, 
because of that, Stephen had to drop out, and uh, and uh, when Stephen dropped out, and we were down to just one guest, I decided to switch movies. And when we switched movies, I thought it'd be great for the movie we switched to to talk to our friends the Hapes, who are wonderful people, and I love them to death. Uh, and then, unfortunately, this evening. Uh, Jonathan and I have spent the last two and a half hours trying to get our audio set up to work in a way where all all of us could record together. Uh, Meanwhile, <laughs> my wife falling further and further asleep yes. as such <laughs> yeah. as such things happen as the exciting. Yeah. Can you hear me, Pat? Yeah. Okay. Wait, I can't is it hear there? Me. Wait. What? Oh, it's put the, that in over there. Oh it's no! This it darn again. sound flower. It's the down. You just gotta hook up the. It's only uh, on the internet. Dollars. Yeah, it's only $99 <laughs> for a replacement for a free thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. So, anyway, uh, don't try to do this on a Mac, I guess, is no, the answer. absolutely uh, not. Podcasting. Don't Don't, don't do try it. it. Anyway. Avoid it. Uh, so, Casey, Casey watched the movie and was going to join <laughs> us, but we took too long and she fell asleep. So, we should uh, ask we're gonna her to out. record her thoughts as, like an, as a, an appendix to the thing. I actually was going, if she stayed asleep on the couch as she was and hadn't gone upstairs, I was going to just like put a mic on her and see if we could get some <laughs> kind of like dream yeah. Yeah. logic answers. Pat, it's our holiday episode. Uh, every year at the end, that was very Kermity. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it was great uh, and inquisitive. Yeah, every year at at the end of the year, when there are so many holidays uh, across many cultures celebrating the the darkest of winter, uh, or the brightest of summer, if you're in the southern hemisphere, uh, we uh, I'm not. <laughs> we're not. None of us are. No, in, no, no, not a single person on this on this I only recording speak for myself. Though, so that's kind of you. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we uh, we like to watch a movie that, uh, incidentally, but not not significantly to the plot, takes place at uh, at our end of year holidays. Uh, and this year's the the holiday the holiday structure of this year's movie is actually pretty integral to the motif of the movie. I think. Yeah, yeah, the, but the, it's not like um. But yeah. But also a different uh, holiday than normal, right? Because it's not right, we're not right. celebrating. Uh, it's not Christmas in this one, so that's that's yeah. fascinating in and of itself, right? Yes, yes. Christmas happens in the background of this one. Uh, yeah, timing wise, it has to lead have. up to New Year's. Yeah, I right. mean, it, it it's must. All about but New we don't, Year's. We don't but, ever yeah. really, um, yeah, we don't talk about acknowledge Christmas at that all, yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. But we're watching uh, we're watching the Hudsucker Proxy this year. From 1994, directed by the Coen Brothers, written by the Coen Brothers, produced by the Coen Brothers, uh, also co-written by Sam Raimi. Uh, well, that yes. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, hence Bruce Campbell's uh, mighty appearance. In yes. This. Yeah, yes. I was like, uh, he's not a Coen Brothers staple. What's he doing here? Yeah, uh, Raimi gave uh, one of the one of the Coen Brothers. Now I can't remember which one. Raimi gave him his start as a second unit director under him, hmm. oh. uh, and. They uh, they apparently had actually started working on this script around 1985. Uh, it's it stuck around for a long time. Wow! Uh, and was going to be too expensive to film back then as an independent. So the Coens had to wait until they had enough clout to actually get the budget they needed to make this movie. Um. Yeah, the script was finished in 1985. But Wild. 
Yeah, yeah that's, that is interesting uh, to think about. So, so is that why it's so uh, contemporary feeling to a movie I've never seen but I see constantly referenced with this movie, Brazil? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that actually. does definitely for sure. You can feel that. It would have right? been, yeah, it would have been more contemporary in Brazil, um, and more, yeah, maybe more but, of a response. But then to again, though, I mean, it is can it, it is, it's definitely stylistically has a lot in common with Brazil as far as like sort of its take on sort of social hierarchy and structure and things like that, and and also yeah. just sort of visually it has a it, you could sort of feel a, a similarity there, like even though obviously the. The actual visual style is so different, but they're both sort of um, highly highly stylized versions of what they're going for, right? Um, right. But like, the thing about it is, is that uh, you know it. It seems like. And they, go ahead. And they both have angel wings. I was going to say <laughs> yes, There's that too. But uh, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. Brazil, Brazil is much more overtly a political film than this is. Uh, I think well, you get of course, a, yeah. You get a political I, read I more of this mean film, kind of like but, the look, but yeah, you know, I think and, the look. Yeah. There's a lot about the look of this movie. Um, Brazil is much more overtly a satire than this is just a screwball comedy well, pastiche, and, right? Yeah, and but, honestly, like not to not like I I enjoy this movie, but like not to malign it, but like it feels like this is sort of in some way the sort of like. <laughs> kind of like for lack of a better term coward's version of brazil where it's like well we're not gonna like we're not gonna explicitly tell you necessarily how fucked up, you know what i mean like i don't know like well like, it has brazil fun is, with those ideas is, like a cartoon does you know yeah. and one one of the things i really like about like rocker's modern life is it's not it, it's just a kid's cartoon where that kind of stuff is going on in the background the conglomo and all these ideas right, of right. like where people fit in in society and 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 um and those things are sometimes overt, but usually they're just in the middle of a bunch of slapstick and nonsense and right. almost body horror esque yeah. stuff. And you know, I think that this movie does that because those are comedic points, the points right. that they're making. And that's you know, like Casey was talking about it being a satire and, and things like saying that it's a satire. And I think that they market it as a satire, and it's not one. It is a funny yeah, comedy. Right. It is. It is basically somebody. It's a cartoon version of a Frank Capra film. So Brazil's also overtly a Christmas movie. It does take place at Christmas. It Interesting. Takes the background of Christmas. One of the one of the points of the satire in Brazil is about the consumerism of the of the culture that he lives in. Uh, Which this one doesn't really like. No, it talks about the company being that way, but it doesn't have like a cynical view of like. No, even really. they just like pointed out mo- more as like realities and gags about how money hungry these guys are. Yeah, and use it for like emotive as like this sort of person is like this than they do to say and it should be like deemed as wrong and like evil well, that, and, that's, and that's the thing right is I, when i was talking about this versus brazil i think that's like an important you know and again it's fine there's nothing wrong with it just being a sort of cartoon more cartoony version right. of that but like right like brazil you know is meant to call out that behavior and like the behaviors it's talking about in a much more like obvious way right Whereas right. this and is more Terry like, well, Gilliam. you make your you make your own call about how these guys fucking suck. Like, <laughs> yeah, yes. And it, Terry Gilliam has so few movies compared to the Coen Brothers right. that the Coen Brothers are just able to kind of make like a like a screw off sort of movie in many different styles. I would consider Big Lebowski that way. I would say uh, Lewin Davis that way. They all have like this kind of like 
no arc. It just kind of goes up a hill right. and then falls off. And even their best movies do that, and that's what makes them really great, that they're able to be like, you know, we're going to make something really crass, and now we're going to make something really, like, PG. Like, right, th- right. I like that they have this movie more than I like the movie itself. I like it amongst the other films they've made, if that makes yeah, sense. No, I get, like, yeah, it's it, it sort of, they, they have their sort of oeuvre, which is so, like, sort of, Whatever they feel like doing at the time, mm-hmm. which is which is right. and this which proves nice. that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I mean, listen, this is an early Coen Brothers yes. film, right? It's number five of of their films, right? And before this, we've got Blood Simple, which is right. absolutely a a crime film, a noir, a, a noir, dark, yeah. deep, <laughs> right? Witty. We've got uh, and then raising, raising Arizona, Arizona boom, right after the other that. side, yeah. Swing that, but and also then, still a crime movie. Yes, uh, but like but, in, but in like very much to- a comedy. totally different clothing, yeah. you know. Like, yeah. I mean, almost every one of their movies is a comedy, even if right, it is, right. you know, right, right. whatever. But, and then, and then and Miller's then back to Miller's, Miller's Crossing, Crossing <laughs> another neo noir. Uh, and then Barton Fink and is then Barton Fink is what, and Casey, you know, Casey loves Barton Fink. And when we were watching this, as much as her and I both really like it, in fact, it was Casey's. Um, first Coen Brothers movie. Barton Fink was. No, was... Um, oh, of Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy. Okay. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like, 94, it was PG. You know, like, it was just a movie right. that'd be on TV or satellite or whatever. So, it makes sense. And so, like, because of that and ha- having this earnest place, it's great. But she was kind of also like, man, I really just want to watch Barton Fink right now. Because it doesn't fit that crime mystery thing they've done. Right. And it doesn't fit... Kind of, and I was like, this kind of is the PG version of Barton Fink, <laughs> like where it's, you know, just kind of a guy lost in I think that's fair. another I think world, you know, yeah. that he thought would be great and really is full <laughs> of turmoil and like, right, right. So it was it was different to what they had done, really. Mostly, I say that because even even with even with raising Arizona. It was crime-based, I guess I could argue. Uh, you know, Barton Fink isn't a crime movie. It's, it's still sort of a th- thriller, a uh, comedic thriller. It's but so bizarre. It's such Barton a bizarre Fink movie. is wonderful. <laughs> and once again, another homage to and love of that era, which this movie should be, but instead it's 1958. Can we talk about that, that it should be like... 1930s, right, 1930s. right. I mean, it's it's interesting right. because it, it it walks around in the aesthetics of a of a sort of uh, Art Deco sort of, yes. you know, 20s, 30s sort of, and 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 is talking about like talks about corporate structure and everything in a way that is we we think of as synonymous with like the the you know pre crash you know pre crash sort of um yes, but then like it's yeah. set in the late 50s. It it's an it's almost yeah. like I don't know why that I don't I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't hate it or anything. It does bother me at times throughout the movie, just because I'm like, okay. It feels what it feels like to me is when you watch a Superman cartoon or read a Superman comic book in the '50s or '60s, but it's or Batman for that matter. Like both of them work the same way, but they're very clearly set in the like, yeah, Art Deco ba- period. I mean, Batman Future Past has always existed though, so they've all that. And if it would be super juxtaposed, it would be a little more sense. But it just seems like they wanted the movie to be in the 30s and then found out when the hula hoop was actually invented. Right. 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 That's I, I, that, I was going to say the same thing. They're like, oh, wait. Oh, okay. 
we have to change the date because we don't we wouldn't want people to call us out for being inaccurate for this weird like for this for the hula hoop yeah but mind you these are the very few conceits i have about any problems with this movie and they're minor even the even the transatlantic accent uh or mid-atlantic accent sorry (laughs) not transatlantic uh mid-atlantic accent that um uh uh, jennifer jason lee has i i it's both annoying and yeah. also really great that she goes for it. I mean, and it's like, it's a whole cloth re- uh, a whole cloth reference to uh, his girl Friday, right? right. For and, 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 his and a little Friday. too on the nose, to, yeah. but it's so screwball. Then that's the thing right, is right. It, it didn't decorate itself like a screwball movie, and it should yeah. have a little more because it is very like. I feel like there should be a slide whistle half the time right. when he's like, <laughs> like has the fire on it, you know, and, and, and like, like it, it reads as as being screwbally and everything like that. My only issue, and this is like. We're gonna. We're. It's gonna be one of those things where I, we, I feel like we're in a sort of nitpicking this movie or something. But like, I every time I've watched this movie in the past, which has been a while, like it's been ten years since I watched this movie, mm-hmm. but I've seen it many, many times before that. I always really enjoyed it. Now at this point, sort of the pastiche and the stylization, kind of at this point, just you know, kind of annoys me a little bit. Like. Okay. Like it's got it started it's gotten to the point where now it grates on my nerves and I don't know why I have some hunches that it might have to do with yeah. where movies are now in the in the world we live in right now in you know 2022 well, going on 2023 like somehow that has reflectively gone back and like ruined some of these kinds of movies for me if that makes sense uh, because we've done it better since. Well, not mm. even that, but also like if you look at like for example where movies are right now, um, mm-hmm. the people play with pastiche now more, but even in a way that doesn't feel as authentic as this does. Not authentic to like obviously the pastiche is like in here it's all over the top and ridiculous, but they they're clearly doing it with a lot of like care, like love and care. Like they're doing it because they real you know the Coen brothers are doing this because they really really wanted yeah. to make this kind of movie right like right whereas like the more modern ones and the things that are playing in pastiche feel much more disneyfied and garbagey and so <laughs> okay. it sort of reflects back on on you know does that make sense like it's like this yeah, seems like the almost idea. a touchstone for like oh people have watched this movie and they're now making movies, and they're making sort of gar- more garbagey versions of this. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, now the thing is, this fits such a very specific kind of movie that instead of it being like, "Oh, didn't you want another Frank Capra film?" Because right, well, that's right. really what it is. It it feels it feels like an homage. It feels silly because it is set in that world. Right. So you can't have such a basic idea or have these really. It's kind of the last time that these stereotypes really fit as well, which is another reason why it makes sense that it's in the late 50s. It's right before a big change of everything, right. you know, like and, and you know, obviously buildings that were built in the 30s and things they probably stayed the same for 20 some years. Not everything, you know, it would be completely different in 1958. So, I mean, it's not necessarily stuck there, but I think the pastiche nature of it works in its favor yeah as time goes on because i think i don't know i guess when i was thinking of things that have done it better like Mad Men has obviously done not well, pastiche but has done right, pe- that, time and, time right. period stuff you know period piece stuff better but only in its humor and its dialogue and what it's going for is to be a genuine yeah they're, i mean yeah they're going for thing that the yeah that authenticity that this is not this is obviously not going for but yeah, yeah i don't know right. there's like um 
I even like when I think about like if I think about and I think th- I don't know why I feel this way. Like I can't like put a finger on it exactly, but I feel like movies doing bad like this is not a this is not a bad pastiche in the sense that like this is good. This is very well done and like is getting exactly what it's going for. But in the time since then, I feel like a lot of movies have gone for like half-assed versions of something like this kind of pastiche. Yeah. Where like just pastiche where they're not paying too close to attention to like like Batman is going for authenticity, but like pastiches where they're like, well, I kind of want it to feel like this. I'm thinking specifically. I'm I'm looking directly staring in the dead cold eyes of Disney and Marvel when I say like <laughs> doing half-assed pastiches of things that the director maybe Maybe if the director right. had unlimited freedom and wasn't constrained, maybe they would have done a full pastiche of something, but instead sort of half-assed their way there. Like, um, how, like you, you mean like how some of the Marvel movies are a... Let's go with uh, maybe this is just the most prominent one, period, not just the most prominent one in my mind, but let's say... Winter Soldier is a John le Carre Yes, exactly, but it's not the, a good one. Right, and right. like most recently, like I actually enjoyed it, but like the most recent Thor movie is a like a sort of eighties hair metal pastiche, right. but they don't go all the way, and instead so, they like they're sort of yeah. they're doing it ironically, they're kind of laughing at right. themselves while they're doing it, but they're not like it doesn't feel like we're watching it's something too, where everybody's telling a joke and they're all in on the joke. It feels more like a a wink and a kind of snicker. I don't, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because every time people talk about Marvel movies and they talk about you know them being bad, I'm like, no, I, they're awesome. I love them. I, they have so much rewatchability and whatever. But the ones that I watch are like the Iron Man movies, the Avengers movies, the, the like Ragnarok, yeah. and the Guardians of the Galaxy. I th- there are so many other movies that I don't watch because I'm like, no, no, all the all of those movies of the first part were so good, and then you say like Winter Soldier, I'm like, oh, well. I, yeah, yeah, but that, I would that never watch that, that movie again. That was really just like a poor watch. It's it, just not enjoyable right. to watch it. There's nothing enjoyable about it, and they didn't they didn't find themselves until they got back to that John Favreau style of making it a comedy again, and James Gunn and Taika Waititi, and like all these people that were able to like do that. And I think those people still do a good job. But yeah, now they're going to be in this phase where they are. I haven't seen the new Thor movie. It, I, I don't mean, know like, why I, I enjoyed my, me and my kids liked it, but it was like okay. I was like, but it was like, and it and, and it was. It was interesting in the sense that it is like pretty, pretty out there, but mm-hmm. it yeah. also like felt like they had an idea that they could have embraced fully, and they yeah. half-assed it instead. Right, um, and usually it is more rewarding when you do fully go there, you know, which is why I enjoy things that. I mean, that's one reason why I enjoy this movie so yeah. much because well, that's, it, it, that's it, one reason right. for instance well, another for another more recent film that i think most people would say did that sort of thing well would be the wong kar Wai sections of everything everywhere all at once yeah yeah totally. they were well yeah everything were, everywhere oh, i can't ever say the name of that song, that movie right yeah. but like that movie embraces what it is so well right. that like and that's yes, a, that's an without, example of something similar to this in some ways, right? Yeah, that are, uh, without its own irony, without right, its uh, right. without detachment, um, and I don't know that you can make a movie within the the Marvel Disney machine without detachment, right? That's a, yeah, that's you a can't be attached issue, right? to it, right? Right, uh, but but 
to boil it down, what what you're saying is uh, modern use of pastiche has poisoned the idea of pastiche to, to you extent, in yeah. a way where where it does feel bad here. Uh, interestingly enough, some of the most common uh, critiques from when this came out that I ran across were maybe kind of similar. Uh, not necessarily about the pastiche, but about the particularities of what they're pastiching. Mm-hmm. Um, complaints like that uh, our main character feels is very much a Preston Sturgis main character, but he's existing in a Frank Capra world, and by its very nature, that is at odds in a way that <laughs> is not resolved right. within how the movie is presented. And, you know, we've got, we've got Amy... Archer, who is, again, whole cloth, just Hildy right. from His Girl Friday, uh, which is neither Capra nor Sturgis. That's another director right. we're throwing into that. Nor somebody that would speak yeah. that way in 1958. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely not someone who would speak that way in 1958. Uh, yeah, so, um, so yeah, the, when this came out, not a lot of critics liked it. Right. Because uh, understandable. The, the ones I understand who did, why that is. Yeah. But people didn't like The Big Lebowski either because they thought it was crass and had no meaning. Right. They thought it was just as thin as this. And the only reason why I think if this movie threw in some swears and a couple crass jokes, it would have gone that same cult route. And instead, because it's a little, like, you know, apple-cheeked, it which it has to be to be this kind of movie it hasn't you know it it has it still has its own cult following because i mean anybody that knows you know for kids will get a smile on their face you know i think in 94 and and maybe this is true to a certain extent today in some ways people hated the rocketeer so much people didn't want want to see this kind of movie (laughs) no people didn't want earnestness period right that's true yeah like i mean and and this one is and this one tries a little bit with, you know, it, not like a lot. It's mostly earnest with a little bit with occasionally sort of, it, but it just doesn't get to a point of, of matching yeah. the, the 90s irony. Some, some characters are that. cynical here. Right. But but our main character is, no, is, is yeah. all earnest, uh, even when he hits, you know, he hits rock bottom. He doesn't hit rock bottom with, with an earnest, uh, uh, you know, uh, view forward you know he's yeah. got no hope there but you know he's got an arc um i don't know i feel like for the age range that this movie can go for because it is pg there was a lot of light-hearted and hopeful fare in 94 right whereas not from the critical eye but from more of like the audience but the audience's attention on this couldn't stay i feel like they could have edited about 30 minutes out of the movie yeah. where it just is the same thing going on for a really long time. Yeah. Right. And it feels like it could just have been shortened. And the idea is like, I don't know, because I love how haphazard so much of it is. Why Moses is magic. Where's the magic from? Why, why is that that clock stop time? You know, like right, yeah, right. my favorite stuff in it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that itself is kind of a piece of satire. One one could maybe argue that in right. 1994, uh, the term magical Negro was still just used for uh, someone giving sage advice, not someone with actual magical abilities. Uh, I think I think now we've got enough examples with Moses, with uh, the Green Mile, mm-hmm. of of the magical ne- <laughs> Negro character actually being magic. 
yes, uh, that, right, that that right. term has started to morph. Um, Bagger Vance is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our magical Negro in Bagger Vance is God. Uh, so, um, uh, and, and of course, many of many of Morgan Freeman, <laughs> Morgan yeah, for, for a while there, too. that was just his uh, bread and so, butter. So, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So, yeah, I guess I think just this is an early example of of that sort of character actually having magical abilities to the point where I have seen it labeled as a satire of the idea of, of the, the idea of a, a yeah. Negro. Well, uh, and that would just make sense from them throwing in anything from a movie that they can. Right, right. And, you know, but the only reason why I have a problem with it being called a satire is to me, uh, a satire is what it is through and through. It doesn't yeah. split itself, whereas this might have satirical elements to it. And again, I think maybe it was marketed that way and therefore critically was called that. It doesn't identify itself that as, right. as that now because we... There's not a lot to that. It's very um, okay with itself being the way it is. You know, it's not trying to like punch holes through some something that it's showing you. You're supposed to actually kind of believe in what's going on on the screen a little bit. You know, and that doesn't really happen in a satire. Right. It, 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 usually, you see through it. You know, like to what it's one trying the, to say. Right. One of the things I wanted to kind of loop back on too is you were talking about how, like, well, you know, it's rated PG, and like, you know, that earnestness plays on for more like child or young people oriented um, media. Mm -hmm. But like, I, I, I don't remember the marketing for this in 1994. No. I right. this was not the kind of movie I was exposed to when I was a kid in 1994. That just and and I wonder and I so I hesitate to expand my personal experiences outward, but I don't get necessarily even looking at the like cover that this is a kids oriented movie in the set. Like it could be right. Like you could have done it, but like it doesn't feel like even looking at the the poster art that it's kid oriented. Um, it it being the Coen Brothers doesn't would not register with I think most parents that this is going to be a co kids oriented movie. Right. I don't, right. and, I don't, and even then, yeah. inside of it, there's a certain sort of part of the pastiche is a certain sort of darkness that well, you know happens all the time in kids' movies. But like, you you have to sort of convince families and kids and parents that like, oh, this is actually meant for you, right? Like, because like right. that darkness you see it in like other kid, popular movies at the time. I'm thinking, when did the, that Batman come out? When did the um, the Tim Burton uh, ninety ninety and mm -hmm. some of the or darkness there has a 89 for 192 and that would have been a movie one. i would you know that was an interest a movie i was interested in when i was whatever years old like you know but well because like, it was cool as a superhero and i think those were pretty right. 13 so you had right. to see them you know you right just, you well know. And, that, and that's but, the thing right is that like this one fits in a weird spot where like i don't know if yes. it's marketed to kids but like unless you convince a family like oh yes even though this is kind of dark it's actually got a good message which you know but like, does it? That's I what I'm gonna say. Is like, I would think like has, somebody would mar actually I think kind of has a message. This as a, a movie with a good message. I don't think it has a good message. It has um, a bit of a, a a Christmas Carol message. It's a very you know visited by three spirits when he's like saved from dying and then just immediately goes and does what he needs to and like whatever. But like most of it's just very silly. It's it's like they always end up with the trunk full of money in the river. That's just right. like, that's their thing. And it's kind of that right. at the end uh, things happened. 
Well, that's what <laughs> yeah, that's you know, what like I mean. Like, I don't know through. how you would market this to a family. Market the, how you would sell this to well, a family and say like you should go I, see this movie with your. You I know, think your it fits exactly where it needs to, which is the kind of movie that they were pastiching, which also doesn't really have a place unless you get the lucky chance of being It's a Wonderful Life, and It's a Wonderful Life only became a classic because it, A, wasn't a Christmas movie, B, ended up being a movie that was shown on TV because it was so cheap, because nobody liked it, and it went away mm-hmm. like in history completely, and it was shown on TV repeatedly because it was so cheap, and then people loved it, and it became a Christmas classic, and now it's right. a classic film. But it wasn't for so long, and so this movie could could have done that if it was played on TV all through the late 90s because it was so cheap because it did so poorly and people watched it in the daytime. There you go. And that's kind of how I saw it. I think that's probably how Casey saw it. You know, like, I mean, that's how right. I saw Shawshank, I mean, speaking of him. You know, I never like, saw any Morgan of those Freeman. movies on TV. I, maybe I just had the, the wrong TV access or whatever, but, like, I never saw <laughs> any of those movies on TV growing up. Like, I had to oh, like, yeah. purposely seek them out as I got older. Um and like, and that's what. But also, by the late, by the mid to late nineties, we may be past the point of making like classics via TV viewing. Right? We're more, we've more hit the stage of like, if I think about all those movies that everybody watched on TV in the nineties a million times, most of them didn't turn out to be classics. They mostly turned out to be cult, cult classics, right? Or things that everybody has a fond memory of, but like, aren't necessarily good movies per se. Some of them yeah, are. I mean, some of them are weird. Like, like I, I ended up seeing a few good men about one thousand times. Right. An edited version yes. of the few good men and uh, go, uh, was it Good Morning Vietnam like a thousand times. Yeah. I actually like yeah. both of those movies, but like they didn't exactly. become classics. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, you're right. Those didn't. But again, Shawshank definitely didn't. It played all the time. I mean, there there were there were a lot that did. But you're right. It doesn't always mean that happens. But sometimes people just pick up on it, and I think that the kind of movie it is doesn't really have a place in 1994 and they were okay with that it wouldn't have had a place in 1985 either you know so i feel like it's it kind of went into history where it's supposed to go as that sort of a thing it's like if a rapper tries to make a rock album it's it might be cool but it's not going to be the best rock album and it's going to fade away but hey they did it you know like right and 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 you know i think it's it's also worth you know like i don't like to use like reviewers very much as a guide or like reviews as a guide but it's interesting that like this is one of those weird sort of uh uh i don't know like sort of agreement on rotten tomatoes between both critics and audience they both they all agree it's like it's pretty it's it's better than average it's like oh my gosh casey was reading the the uh roger ebert review and it's done as a devil and an angel on his shoulder basically basically saying like this but this is the problem with this and the other side being like who cares because this is so great and like it's basically like this movie's scope is so large and everything about the characters and how they act is so good and the other side is like why is the 1930s the 50s and why is everything so disparate and not melding you know at the same time i think it's freaking great and i love it you know like personally like i could talk all day on what doesn't work about it but at the end of it like there's a nostalgia that i don't get because i mean i don't get because i watched it when i was a kid i saw it when i was a you know a teenager or an adult right in the early 2000s on tv but there's a nostalgia it brings me from just kind of existing. Like the fact that that movie is there from 1994 
you know, I love that story. It's like quiz, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah, quiz show, yeah. or so you know, yeah. like one of the one of those movies that's just like kind of fell away to time, but like speaks so well to that period of movie making and what people were trying to do, and yeah, right. and it's Coen Brothers, so it's uh, you know, including the mezzanine. Not counting the mezzanine, you yeah. get you get so many little rewarding jokes like right. that, and all um, those are really those are all like this. You know, it, there's a lot of very good stuff in this movie, and I do really right. the I I barring when it gets for me a little bit too pastiche, I think the line delivery in the movie is really 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 good. I really enjoy like anytime we're in the boardroom, I generally. I'm enjoying myself oh, because absolutely. Just, it's just all those characters. Yeah, those characters, are, their interactions are so funny and silly that I find it very enjoyable. Uh, and, and most of the time, the characters interacting, I mean, like his, his orientation's real funny. There's a lot of really good stuff there. They dock you. Yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. really all oh, about yeah. the meshing, right? It's all about whether or not. And I mm-hmm. think that's where you hit every single reviewer who was like, eh, right. it's okay. Is like, but like <sighs> this could have been three movies, three different movies yeah. that would have all been also really good, probably. One of its one of its most positive reviews uh, said that this movie does to big business what Altman's The Player does to Hollywood, and that's an insane thing to say to me <laughs> because because The Player is actually uh, has teeth. And this movie does not have teeth toward big business. Right. I don't and that, know. And, that is a, and that's, you know, yeah. That, it shouldn't make a point. It's a funny right. it movie. It doesn't need It's to. literally no. a goofy well, movie. Well, and I think the problem like, is, is that... whose it, idea was a circle. But, like, yeah, but the thing about hilarious. it is, is I think it's, that's part of what... The, I think that's part of the disconnect that people are hitting on when they're watching it and they're not quite happy, is it feels like it should be making a point. Well, because Raising Arizona, despite its complete ridiculousness is making a very heavy point. And I think that the end of Raising Arizona, I mean, I've absolutely bawled my eyes out. It is beautiful. Raising Arizona, by the way, was the first Coen Brothers movie I saw. And I saw it in like 92 because my parents had friends that told us we should watch it and we watched it. And that, so I saw that before I even saw it. Raising Arizona is a movie that has something to say about class that that the Coen brothers are obviously purposefully saying about class. And The Big Lebowski is a movie that has something to say about class that is absolutely purposefully saying about something about class. This is a movie that but, I don't feel like has a a purposeful message. Right. I think but any it, kind of message way. you get out of it is accidental. Yeah. Right, but the <laughs> thing yeah. is is that when <laughs> you look at it, when you look at the things it's pastiching and the way like for example, the way yeah. the asshole business board acts everything you every turn you sort of feel like okay soon it's going to start making a point yeah and then it just yeah, never maybe, quite maybe. does i don't know it never does yeah i like that i don't know i like that I, but i think that's what puts people off of, i come like, back the people who do get put that's off why i like it, wes anderson even sometimes the points are manufactured or they're learned by the characters but not the audience or you know or again i really do think coen brothers are known for not making a true point because Usually everything just falls off a cliff. It lands in a river. It, everybody dies. Like whatever. <laughs> right. like, it, inside Lewin Davis is probably the closest I can come to it. And again, I think people can pull meaning out of it. But to me, it's just a really fun story, and it's a snapshot. And this isn't a snapshot. It's a total story. It's a. It should be a fable, but there's no lesson. And I, 
I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like it when stuff does that because I'm like, cool, I'm just able to get the jokes out of it. And that's it, you know. I think that's fun, especially because they've done things with meaning. You know, they've done things with mystique and interest and, right. you know, yeah. again, saying something, I like it that they can go about it. I feel like Hail Caesar's very much that way. Hail Caesar's my favorite movie of, yeah. of theirs. And people found it very middling and very, you know. I was I was surprised in, in researching this film because this film very, very often shows up pretty pretty high, well, pretty low, I guess, on mm-hmm. uh, on lists of, of Cohen's movies ranked. Basically, it's Lady Killers and then almost 90% of them, the next one. <laughs> Which, is, weirdly enough, is, Lady Killers is, is, is one, I think, I don't remember what year did Lady Killers come out? Uh, it's... 2003 or whatever yeah, we were yeah. in, like we I think saw we were in high school yeah yeah we saw and it I, together. Yeah, yeah and and like i i don't know they're like i never hate any of their movies let's be really clear here like yeah it, it that one but i like that one about like less than i like this one but they're both sort of like they feel similar to me right but yeah see yeah. i yeah i don't i don't I don't, I, I don't feel that way personally i get but. that i think i think that um the lady in lady killers uh was phenomenal uh, she did really good, and I think that the Coen Brothers' Lady Killers is a better movie than the original Lady Killers, uh, but that's probably about all the praise I could have for it, but I still liked watching it. Um, yeah. The, the it, fart jokes were dumb, but there were There were some funny things, but, yeah. I mean, like, it probably is out of what I've seen. Yeah. I don't know, that or... Um, maybe Burn After Reading? Yeah. But I brought, up, I brought up the ranking because... Uh, some of them had Hail Caesar as like number five, and then some of them had Hail Caesar as number seventeen. Oh yeah! And I was really, really well, just surprised. People very by much that. Well, and Hail so Caesar. what I and my my takeaway on this, wonderful. if you look at like the the ratings of the films and stuff like that, my takeaway on this is really that like there's a a few that are like identified as the best, right? Like you know, yeah, and then. Everything else, it really depends on who you are and where you are in your in your <laughs> right, headspace, right. and you're gonna have yeah. a very different experience with the movie. So, which is interesting, right? Like they make movies that like some some seventy percent of the audience is like, yeah, that was pretty good, and then some whatever percent or you know you know maybe thirty percent of the audience thinks is amazing, thirty percent of the audience thinks sucks balls, and the other and the rest are just like, mm, yeah, pretty good. See, they're my favorite kind of <laughs> director. They're they're my favorite kind of creators. They are prolific. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. They're going to do whatever they want to do, and it, nothing knocks them down or pulls their trajectory in one way or another. You know, like my favorite director, of course, is Wes Anderson, but Wes Anderson takes so long to do movies, and he only does his thing and mm. blah, blah, blah. Whereas I feel like the Coen brothers are able to just, like, move around and do whatever right. they want, mm. and it's always going to be them and it's always going to be good, yeah. you know, in one way or another. And it's almost always going to be a big surprise. And when it's not, are the only times that I have a have a hardish time. But that's that's just because I've watched them all out of order. And at, right. about the right. third time you see a bunch of money sink, yeah. it's like, oh, really? This one so, too? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this we, we said we've got a Howard Hawks character whole cloth. We've got a Frank Capra plot in that it is more or less uh, a big business set version of mm-hmm. uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You mm-hmm. know, he hits rock bottom, he tries to commit suicide, and 
an angel saves him. Uh, yeah, and it goes through very how he got there. But it does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Sturgis stuff, I feel like, is is a major influence, but I don't know that, that we've seen enough Sturgis films. We've seen some great Sturgis films, Pat and I, through the collection. Right. I don't know. You wouldn't necessarily. Um, so, you know, Sullivan's Travels, I think, this reminds me some of with our main character. Uh, but Sullivan's Travels didn't really... Sullivan's Travels' political point was ultimately that uh, everybody likes movies. Uh, basically, <laughs> that, that that Mickey Mouse was the great e- class equalizer was uh, was the point. Okay, of, basically, because everybody liked it. Um, yeah, the 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 climax. Uh, Sullivan's Travels. Uh, to explain to Jonathan really quick is about a guy who makes movies and he's disillusioned, and he he, he goes travels, and and then he, uh, you know, he finally realizes the transcendentness of movies when he is in a Southern African-American church that a white sheriff marches a bunch of chained chain gang prisoners into and all of them watch this Mickey Mouse cartoon together uh, and everybody loves it. Right. And that's, you know, that's, that's maybe out of any of the Sturgis films, the closest we get to a political statement from Sturgis. Okay. Because the other one is like unfaithfully yours. The one where, the uh, the orchestra conductor imagines three different ways he's going to kill his wife. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which is like, I enjoyed, but yeah, like it, it has yeah. no it has no point. <laughs> it was super fun. It was it's a very fun movie, but it's obviously a movie that has no yeah no yeah. You would, you message. would have to work right. very hard to pull a message out of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, a or, bird in the hand is worth <laughs> two in the bush. Yeah. And then, um, what's the other one? We've seen The Lady Eve, which I barely remember. It was very early, but it's 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 kind of just a screwball comedy. Right, yeah. If I remember correctly, I think a, a woman, uh, Barbara Stranwyck, I think, pretends to be... Uh, or lies about who she is in order to... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, but then they end up falling in love anyway, and I don't know. Anyway, it's weird. Um I don't really remember it, and it was what spine was it? One oh three. It was uh, it was nine years ago that we watched that, uh, more or less. Um, so yeah, uh, 400, 400, 450 spines ago, but, uh, but yeah, um, but I do remember those other Sturgis movies much much more explicitly, uh, and he is a he is a great director, um, but yeah, this this. Definitely owes a lot to Sturgis. Definitely owes a lot to, right. to yeah. the other directors we've named, and it it does that. I don't know. I think ugh, I think it just still boils back to me, as far as audience reception of this, that the Coens earnestly wanted to make a pastiche of those directors who they loved, mm-hmm. and no one no one in 1994 wanted an earnest pastiche of anything yeah no, i think that that is probably a big part of it right and like no for sure and and they they had enough i guess enough power to throw around that they could make a movie happen that yeah, wasn't going t- to appeal to the majority of the audience that yeah. like might watch it right the studio told them to do reshoots and they said no oh. uh, they had they had final edit and they just uh they determined they did not want to do the reshoots, so they didn't. Now, I'm curious about this. I feel like Barton Fink wasn't, like, a commercially successful film. Wouldn't you... Th- um, but maybe it just stayed on an indie circuit and this next one went bigger. But I'm sure one was critically acclaimed and the other one was not. But 
so I guess that's all they're reaching for, or all we're talking about is, you know, the appeal of critics. Right. Budget. Barton Fink did not make its budget back either. <laughs> right. Like, that's what I'm saying. But like one, and to me, this is much more a classic where Barton Fink is much more like kind of a deep dive into them. Not saying it's not a better movie, just saying like it's a headier film Yeah, about something kind of more niche, you know, just very, very much as much an homage to Hollywood. Yeah. Except from the other side of it, from the writer's side of it, just as much as Hail Caesar is from the other side of it or any of those films that they've done, you know, but the fact that this one lives inside one of those movies that was made is pretty pretty unique to me and something that I think Wes Anderson has explored doing. He's made movies that essentially are about characters that live in books within other movies, and I think that Quentin Tarantino has now done that by making some of those, like, um, the more grindhouse films. He makes kind of the content that would be in some of the movies he's made that is referenced, you know? I think mm-hmm. he's gone that route multiple times so i think that this works as being a piece inside of that i think that's also why i like hail caesars you get to see both you see some of the films that they make and the behind the scenes stuff like you would in barton fink or something yeah yeah i think that's fair it's like miyazaki and plane films you know like sometimes they're about people that fly the plane sometimes they're about people that make the plane sometimes there are societies where you just live by the wind and so you just glide on airships uh other planes it's all planes <laughs> that sure. it is that it is it's all yeah. briefcases <laughs> this movie do- does this movie have a briefcase of money i don't think so uh, i don't think so no 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 like Almost not even not. no they've got an envelope in the pocket oh That's one of the funniest parts uh when she's going through his desk like when they first right. meet trying to figure it out and she just pulls open the desk and just the the pencil yes there's a single pencil rolling around yeah absolutely stuff like that is just impeccable in this when she when she breaks into his office later right before she meets moses uh she uh we don't see it that time but she opens that drawer again and we hear the pencil yeah yeah that 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 is actually my that's actually my favorite version of that joke because like oh nothing's changed here (laughs) like this is exactly it's just as empty as it was this desk and his head are just as empty as they were earlier yeah, it's very good. Uh, yeah. Um, I will say, uh, now that we we brought up Amy again, I spent a good chunk of this movie thinking, that doesn't look like Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, before about an hour ago realizing, oh, that's because I thought it was Jennifer Connelly the entire time. Oh, gotcha. Every time I saw her Jennifer Jason Lee, I thought Jennifer Connelly. And that's why that's why I didn't think it looked like her because I was picturing Jennifer Connelly as the person I was <laughs> I was comparing that to because my brain's broken. One Uh, (laughs) one fact we point er, there we found out today is that uh, she does the voice of Eunice Yulmeyer on um, Mission Hill, which is Weirdy, which is Kevin's love interest for one episode, and she sounds almost identical to this character, and in fact makes many references (laughs) as such. Yeah, yeah, Uh, which you know that's. The Mission Hill people making a reference to this, movie. right? Right. Yes. I'm yes. sure. More than anything, but or yeah. to or saying who who can we get like the films that we listen, like, yeah. watch? There were a number of critics in 1994 who put this on their top ten list for the year. That uh, it checks with my theory about this movie. 
There's going to be, yeah. among critics also, there will be some that are like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And yeah. there'll be an equal number of ones who are like, this is fucking garbage. You know what I mean? Glenn Lovell be- of the San Jose Mercury News uh, listed it as his biggest disappointment of the year. <laughs> Wait, make up your mind. San Jose or Mercury? <laughs> Come on. They're you can, I don't think you can live in both places. You one's on Earth and one's the planet Mercury. I don't know about mm, that. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. People complain about this, uh, it being oddly paced. Um, it I is th- oddly paced. And I think for the most part, the pacing is very, very on par with uh, with the movies that they're referencing. Um, that's true. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to like something like, uh, what? Uh, I already forgot the name of the one about the, the opera, the uh Oh yeah, conductor. Unfaithfully yours. I I love that movie, but like unfaithfully yours is is ninety nine percent like a series of dream sequences, and then him trying to do one of them at the very end. Like it's very it's very oddly paced, but it's you know to a certain extent. I think I it's weird because like some of the complaints that people I have my complaints about the movie, but mine don't always match the complaints of the people who are complaining. Like in the past, like I like the pacing. It's weird but it's makes it more fun for me somehow because it's it's unpredictable about like when things will like move forward and when they won't you know what i mean like i don't know how to explain it like it didn't yeah when i think about badly paced movies i think about movies that like make me want to die because they just won't move on whereas this one doesn't feel that way to me i think jonathan said earlier that uh like imagine cutting you know, a half hour or so out of this movie. Um, I don't know. Taking it down to, to 85 minutes might might do something. But at the same time... I think it might also I, have I the just, potential I to think, ruin the movie. <laughs> like straight I think up. The pacing, I think the pacing for the story they want to tell works for me. I really yeah, do. No. Uh, yeah. I generally agree. Uh, like, it, it is weird pacing, but I do for the most part like it like there's no there's no there's no point where stuff comes to a crashing halt there's no point where i feel like it goes on too long in a way that isn't its own joke like the like the the flash to the kids first interacting with the hula hoop is a scene that goes on too long no but, but the that's fact that it goes that, on too long that's is part exactly of the where it should be right, right. So, and yeah, that's what makes it fun like, right that that is yeah. the fun part about it is how long it takes to like yeah. culminate right but i think they were learning how to do that and i think that they just did it with a couple of the wrong scenes with this maybe, one maybe. where 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 the length of them including what they're trying to pull for comedy that isn't playing for comedy and is still but it's still meant to like kind of set up the motive or yeah presence of what's going on like i'm i'm mostly thinking of when he comes into paul coming into the office for the first time i think that's true and i think there's so much of that that just stands still and doesn't move the story along where everything else that's very fast paced until that point and i get it it goes from the mail room and everything being like buddy 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 blah 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 blah, and everything really fast and then all of a sudden it's paul newman's office that's like a ticker tape right and then him yeah you know, but it's like cavernous and it's cathedral esque, right? But it right. just it it doesn't feel like it's doing anything with that. It kind of just stands, sits there a yeah. little bit. But again, that's a mild complaint for something that you know I think overall succeeds. 
at what it's doing. And you're right, I think, that movies from that the eras it's pulling from do that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I can feel that way about like some of my favorite movies from that era. Philadelphia Story. Love right. that movie to death. And I feel like there are scenes in that that probably also feel just a little longer. They're just like pull it out a little further than it needs to. Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. There's, you know, there's one director of that era, I think, that uh, that absolutely is not in this movie, and that's Lubitsch. Uh, and maybe it could have done a little better with some more Lubitsch in it. Right. Maybe I don't know, but uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. Like the the people it's overtly referencing make good movies, certainly, right? Yeah, they're all great. Um, it's just you know the 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 Sturgis stuff is more in an ether. We can we can we can name specific Capra elements mm-hmm. that are here, right? Uh, we can obviously name a very specific Hawks <laughs> thing that is here. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's oh, but okay. So it um, my favorite movie of theirs. Actually, I said was Hail Caesar, and I would still probably stand by that. But prior to that coming out was The Man Who Wasn't There. Mm-hmm. And The Man Who Wasn't There is a movie that I find to be beyond anything that they've done in a totally different way. And I think that there are people that think that, that believe that there are elements of that movie that don't work. And, you know, keep it from being what it could be and whatever. And I think every single thing people find is a flaw in that movie go, works for it. In this movie, I don't feel as connected to those reasons, but I still believe that about it, if that makes sense. Like, the little bits and pieces that may not work actually add quirk that makes it its own thing instead of these uh, a true pastiche. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the moments where uh, he's falling, um, Paul Newman is falling, and he has the flashbacks to the pants. Yeah being tailored right like just just pure genius like things like that happen throughout the entire film um obviously when he's falling in in, um the angel you know like the uh and that hud sucker comes down is the moment in the movie that's just like everything is great here i'll take every line he's singing she'll be coming around the mountain like why like (laughs) all of it's so so far into its own idea of who these characters are I, I i just really like it when people feel free to do stuff like that you know right right actually i will say i will say well that is obviously a very a very uh it's a wonderful life element in, in what's happening yes there. but not the even actual, how it's done the actual but... angel i do and, and singing is coming around and that actually does feel kind of lubitsch to me uh <laughs> i think there's there's something there to that um but I think the the thing with the pants is one moment where where the dragging it out does the comedy right for me, but I can definitely see where. Oh, I love that. Where other people, I love how it just pulls that. Well, but that's that's the thing, right? Is when you get into that kind of you know, comedy is is very subjective, right? And like, yeah, it does it for me. Like, I really like that, but like. I can, yeah, I agree that there's definitely, you can imagine people being like, this fucking annoys me. I am annoyed yeah. now. Uh, and that's like, that's a hard thing to get around, right? Because like, a a hits, everybody like loves it. Comedy is like 
hard, if not impossible to make. Right. And like, and especially when you're getting into this sort of like the weirdness of the comedy here, like the way, like, you know, we say we've said screwball, but you know, you know, at the same time, like it's not exactly like what I would traditionally think of as a quote unquote screwball comedy. But like, um, but my point is, is that like it, when you get into that kind this kind of comedy, it's, it becomes even more sort of hit or miss, right? Like, uh, and not like on a like oh they didn't do a good job it comes hit or miss on a personal level with every essentially right, every right. viewer <laughs> yeah yeah and that's you know one of the reasons that uh, the studio wanted reshoots was that they got mixed reviews in the pre mm-hmm. in yeah. the pre shows you know not that they got bad reviews necessarily I mean obviously if it's mixed reviews there's bad reviews in there but they weren't universally bad. Uh, and that you know, and, and really I would it. argue that probably a movie in this sort of vein, it's going to be impossible to not get mixed reviews. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Between what it's going for and also executing it properly, I I don't know. I feel like Coen Brothers get mixed. Like again, to a general audience, get mixed reviews with half of their movies, anyways. Right. But so I don't strike it as anything different. And so it is weird that people put it so low on the list. Um so many times. I don't know. There's there's so much about it to like um because of how much intention and care is put into it. You want to like parts of it even more than you might, but I feel like I was like that with so many movies growing up as as a kid, and now I like them. You know, like I said, I like movies without meaning. Bill and Ted yeah. is like one of my yeah. favorite movies ever. I love how much meaning is just jam packed into be excellent to each other and party on, dude, and that's yeah. it. <laughs> you know, but there's right. but although I you do love those characters a little more than you even really have to care for our main character here. Because he's on a roller coaster, whether we like him or not, and really, when he becomes famous and he becomes an asshole, but that's like the the trope. That's what you do when you become big and famous, and then you hit that rock bottom, and then you come spring the board back up. So right, right, yeah, and that's you know, it's to our to our character arcs. It's where he and Amy switch places. You know, she's yes, right, yes, you know, and then and then they get to come back together when they when they swing back in the end right uh yeah i don't know it's a very funny movie too what do you think if they would have put bruce campbell as uh the main character instead of just switched him and tim robbins places in 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 1994 bruce campbell i don't i mean no there's no version of bruce campbell that i think i don't know i'm trying to think like can he play that kind of character? Um, can I can I go for jumping it. from that question, but but derailing it? Sure. Why Joel not? Silver, the producer of this movie, wanted Tom Cruise in the role. Oh, well, then suddenly it's not a. It can't be. A, it can't be. A, it can't even by 1994, right? It can't be a screwball comedy anymore, yeah. right? Now it has to be deadly serious about what it is. If mem- yeah, I, I have think to check it would have been Tom risky Tom business Cru- too, right, right? Right, but like, w- was Tom Cruise past risky business style? Of course, completely right. by 1994, right? Yeah, he was like about to do Mission anymore. Impossible or something, right? And so, like at that point, like I get what there, what's what the idea there is, but not uh, too late. <laughs> you you missed that ball, 
It, well, you know, when you were writing in 1985, that's possible, right? Right. He was about to do Cocktail or something, you know, yeah. like definitely would have been a screwball comedy and could have done like the wet behind the ears thing in that right, era too. Right. Yeah. Which again, I, w- I was saying to Casey, um, it's so funny. I think Tim Robbins only got roles because there were so many period pieces being made because you have uh, in that same era with this, you have Shawshank Redemption and you have IQ. IQ, IQ came out the same year as this. It came yeah. out in, in December of this and year. And I, I love IQ. I absolutely adore that movie. I could watch that over and over again and not find one problem with it. Charles Durning in IQ as well. The uh, Hudsucker. Yes. Has a role in IQ. Of course. Yeah, of course. They were both both in two movies that year. That's amazing. The same two movies that year. He's such a joy to watch, even, you know, like shaking his leg, trying about to jump out the window. And just the look in his eye and what he's doing, like, we don't know what's going through his mind. Durning's fun. Uh, He's played Santa a surprising number of times, uh, but I only know at that because yes, at the mall. <laughs> yeah, no, I only come over I here, kid, and sit down. <laughs> the the line's over there. I'm Santa over here. <laughs> I only I only know that about Durning because I recently saw him play Santa in uh, Mrs. Santa Claus, the uh, made-for-TV musical starring Angela Lansbury. Uh, what from like uh, what year was that? I feel like it was like two thousand. What? Yeah. yeah. Uh, who else? Okay, so uh, Joel Silver really wanted Tom Cruise in the role. Uh, John Cryer auditioned for it. Okay. Um, but so you have to like think back and try to remember what people were well, John like. Cri- John Cryer in 94. Did John Cryer have a career between Pretty in Pink and uh, uh, Two and a Half Men? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> like... I mean, Whoa. I mean, he appear. I think he appears as like <clears throat> bit parts, right, and stuff. I would have, I could see him as this role. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe he could have. He could have worked. I think it yeah, would have been very I, different I, to his. Tim Robbins just. He'd have a very well, different the, career. The problem is if that like, worked, Tim Robbins does but. such a good job. Is is so impeccable as that like farm boy that like this the the thing he's doing here is so impeccable. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to like, in your mind, like think okay, like but like, could somebody have? It would just always be such a different character than this, right? It would just have to be. Yeah. Again, I I believe during this era, he he lived in nineteen forty fifty. Well, he's got yeah, he's got the look, right? He's got the look. He can pull off thirties to like he's got late fifties, and and then like after that, it just it all falls apart. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm now looking at John Cryer's like filmography to see what he was doing in 1994. <laughs> yeah, there's really nothing. Yeah, it was it was definitely a, a low <laughs> period. Yeah, um, one on a ride. He's in Bridget Hot Fondo. Shots. Apparently, I don't. I've not seen Hot Shots in eight, one million years. Oh man, he was in Hot Shots. Apparently, where they where they first met and then came I, back. I think all legitimately those years later that is true. To be two and a half men. I do believe that is oh. actually true. But <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, Amy Archer was uh, considered to play Amy Archer or Winona Ryder and Bridget Fonda as well, who I think either would have yeah. worked out fine. Um, not that anyone Jason Lee is bad in the role. Or, uh, no, well, I think, but I think the difference job. there is that... I think that, either of them uh, could have pulled it off. Right. I think the difference is, is that, like, oddly enough, when we get into discussing, like, the, the, you know, the male lead versus the female lead, like, 
the difference is is that like this character, you know, Amy Archer is such a well-defined style. Right. Yeah. Whereas, like, in some ways, uh, you know, so like anybody could not anybody, but like any of the three people you named could have pulled that, could have done that. Well, I think more more than any of the uh, any of the male characters in the movie. Again, as I've said multiple times, you're not just playing this character; you're playing, uh, you know. You're playing Rosalind Russell playing this character, right? Yeah, right. You're, you're not. Right. Well, yeah, that, yeah. That produces a very specific definition, right? Whereas yeah. Norval Barnes is basically a blank sheet of paper, right? Yes. Like, right, right, right. You just insert like whatever this person kind of looks like, like whatever actor you get. Well, this guy looks like he's. You, this kind of guy, right? And just go for it. As long as he's a naive, it doesn't matter otherwise, right? Right. Whereas Amy Archer has a like, as is in theory, like a, a very stereotypical but a very type of person. Whereas like Barnes is just like just the a blob man, of human yeah. being that just showed up in in the city and like can be molded <laughs> into whatever, right? Right. Um, one of them has history and one of them doesn't essentially. Uh, so yeah, it, one it, of, yeah. One of the things that this movie does a great job of using from the get go is, uh, or it seems like it are models, like using model cities and using all the cutouts in right. the background. Like, there's something that they do that, <clears throat> again, like kind of Wes Anderson would do. I feel like later, and they they really take that idea and run with it, and you know everything with the clock and just being super practical and. And the sets on it are just really well built. I just wonder how they built up that kind of scale because it is a bigger scale movie than they've done, you know, at the time, and didn't really have any like commercial successes to this point. They they were one movie away from Fargo, right? You know, um, yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. I I wonder why uh, why Warner trusted them yeah yeah to, there's a, bi- a big question why did why do people keep right ra- why did people keep writing them checks right but like uh yeah yeah um but thank god they did you know because all these movies are wonderful right right we talked recently with with joseph von sternberg we did a box set we're actually in the middle of the box set as we as we speak uh because we'll finish that up uh in a couple of weeks <laughs> with the final film there uh but uh but he's a guy who really epitomizes that your you know, studios only care about your last film, not right, about right, what yeah. you've done previously. As long as the last one was good, it's fine. So he gets he gets lucky that uh, you know he was hired as basically the director of photography uh, as a co-director role, and then the other guy just disappears from production <laughs> for you know reasons no one can recount. Uh, and that movie did very well. So then he gets other movies, whereas prior to that, everything he had made never even made it to the light of day. Uh, and the, the Coens, I don't know. Uh, Barton Fink didn't do terribly, but like I said, it didn't make the right. Money and and back. and the kiss but of so death is is not making your money back, right? Like that's the <laughs> right. the true kiss of death. You would think, like, oh, you don't you make your think. money back, you're you're out. Like see you later. 
Um, Except for people who are going for legacy and going for critical acclaim over sales and almost like a lost leader sort of thing. It's like you say, hey, we've got these guys doing these movies, so you should bring your you know, film over here that will make us money. I, I think that there's a lot of business reasons to have have something that is critically doing well, but the fact that this movie didn't critically do well and had a, I would assume, a much bigger budget and didn't um, make good on that budget. It had... And then still they make Fargo, which, I mean, Fargo is kind of back to basics, though. Right. Fargo right, is yeah. right back down into um, uh, blood simple territory and very easy. And then that movie was successful in all ways. Yeah, you know? I mean, it okay. seems to be more that, like, perhaps, like, whatever the studio or whatever is using as a metric, that seem that still seems to be hitting. And so, like, you see maybe fluctuations in budget rather than just complete, like, oh, hey, you guys aren't working. You guys you guys right. are doomed. Yeah. You're done. Big, big fluctuation in budget, it turns out. Barton Fink's budget was $9 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fargo's budget was $7 million. This movie made between twenty five. Yeah, yeah, that uh, makes sense. Put a lot of movie, a lot of money into this, and uh, and did not make it back. Right, and so I wonder if like if they're hitting with the right critics, which means that like yeah. the movie, the the studio is saying, okay, well, like we've got something here. Like this is not this is not nothing. I mean, it did make more money than Martin Fink made. Uh, but, but it uh, also costs significantly more than but it made. It doesn't. It made, it, yeah, it made much lower percentage. It, I would yeah, yeah, it actually it lost released more in money general than theaters. Than theaters right, you know, right, like, right. That's how it made. It made yeah. more money because there were more places for it to make money, and it premiered at Sundance. Uh, you well, know, I mean, well, it was the new Coen Brothers push. movie, right. right? And and I have to, I have to think that it must have been a hit with the right critics, and right. and like. Enough that people, you know, studio execs saw potential and said, okay, like, eventually these guys are going to make one that is, like, actually makes us money. <laughs> but it's, that's an interesting <laughs> thing because I don't think studios would necessarily do that now. I don't. I think that the era that this, that, that could happen is gone. I think the, those studios, are, you know, now the studios we know that are doing that are to a much larger point, like A24. Well, yeah, yeah. Like I, I was thinking, like, you the know, major... Yeah, like, the majors. A24 or something like that. Yeah, is, of course... But then again, they're not missing very often, also. I think, right. Like, I think, they're not... I, they, it, whether they're taking risks or not, I'm not arguing that they're not. It's just that someone there is a fucking genius who <laughs> knows how well, to, like, identify good risks. Right now. Right, you know? Like, everybody bought anything that Focus distributed. Right. People are now getting yeah. anything that this group does. I so. think I think that Netflix is willing to take those risks. And they just they suck taken at it. those risks. They just, they, they're not very good at it, and they... Uh, they immediately regret taking a risk, right? Yeah, they they they're Netflix too, does very often. Yeah, they're too they're too they they flap in the wind, like you know. And yeah. whoever like made the call, obviously, like you go and look at Fargo, which made just f- fucking yeah gangbusters, right? Like I was I was like, I wonder how much money Fargo made, and it's. I mean, somebody was right because it makes up for all the films previously that didn't make money. <laughs> right, right, right. But, yeah. You yeah, know. Fargo. Fargo might as well have been ET. What it made. Yeah, I mean, a, a seven million to sixty million <laughs> yeah. return is is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Ten times return. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I don't know. I don't know why they got the chance with Hutch Zucker Proxy. Uh, it didn't work. 
and mm-hmm. and yeah, they and, and they then and then somebody decided to keep taking those chances. Extremely stripped down for Fargo. Yeah, yeah, and and you know you have to wonder to a certain extent if if you know if somebody you know Fargo is extremely stripped down, but that's part of what makes Fargo so good, yes. right? Is that like yes. This one, to a certain extent, I wonder if the budget was almost a detriment in the sense that, like, they were able to lean so deeply in the pastiche that that's some of what turned people off. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, some of the sort of set pieces in here don't actually have to be there for oh. the movie to work. Right. A lot Barton of them Fink don't. Won the, Barton Fink won the Palm d'Or at Con. Well, there you uh, go. That's but, the answer. That would be why. Now you have your answer on how <laughs> right, they got to make right. this movie. So yeah. yes, that that it is what we thought, right? Like it hit in the right, right. place that people say, okay, yeah. well, we've got something here. Um, and not being a criti- yeah. being a, a success that way, and not necessarily a financial success is not a necessarily a the end of the world, right? Right, um, right, right. But yeah, no, yeah. it's just it's fascinating because like it, I feel like this one maybe suffers from from sort of its its own like scope yeah 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 like you could do like all those set pieces you could do without them we've seen movies that are kind of in the vein of this story that don't have those and are quite successful right like uh uh, warner brothers reused these these model pieces so much it's almost funny itself uh both of the schumacher batman movies that, have, that's not totally right. Yeah, I have the buildings. They're the buildings from this familiar. movie. In it. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else was on that list? <laughs> maybe maybe uh, Warner Brothers was like, you know what? Like, w- this will pay for itself in uh, in our yeah. ability Browse. to reuse oh, yeah. bu- uh, set pieces forever. <laughs> uh, the Shadow, uh, which is actually Universal, uh, also uses this stuff, but that that makes sense for the the sort of thirties. Mm-hmm. New York thing that the right. shadow was doing. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> weirdly enough, uh, the, uh, the 1998 Godzilla also uses the, the skyscraper heck? models from this movie. Interesting. Which presumably they were destroyed during, uh, because that's Godzilla. He mm-hmm. destroys the models. But, uh, but yeah. Well, they were at the know. end of the lifespan. Like, oh, these are looking a little worse for wear. So yeah, uh, let's make another Godzilla. Let's make movie. a Godzilla right, and just right. tear the shit out of these things. Yeah, these things are these things are four years old at this yeah, point. Yeah, the prop houses uh, really run the studios. Yeah. You know. Yeah, actually, a really interesting thing on the building models is that for uh, for like the the um, for the falling scenes, uh, the guy did all this model work and and everything looks great. But then the Cohen started. Eh, kept deciding that it looked that the the scene itself looked better with a with a wider frame yeah so they kept changing the changing the uh lens and then they were too wide for the models so like the periphery stuff or paper thin uh just throw it up as quickly as possible to get the shot basically stuff but yeah yeah the the visual the set design stuff in this is i think phenomenal yes you know the interiors, even when they're sparse, mm. are impressively sparse. They're they're yes. meant to be right. And they show like right the scale. Outside. The scale is is, right. is the scale is meant to be there. And you know the fact that the the president and vice president offices each have a portion of the clock, I think, is a really neat. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, here. yeah, you. It, it's all very evocative, right? It, it's just yeah. really a matter of like when you look at like 
sort of like this that scale versus how much money it costs versus how much money you know what i mean like right it's like one of those things where like oh well like this is where your this is where the money went like here it is like Mm -hmm. building these enormous set pieces that like work they're good i like them but like they also maybe are like you know it feels like when a, a director gets an idea in their head and like can't ends up blowing the budget on things that aren't strictly speaking necessary. Yeah. The the zoom in on Norval at the beginning of the movie as he approaches the HUD circuit building mm-hmm. is a composite shot with CGI. It's the only way they could do it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There's computers. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what, what you know, so much of it is practical, obviously. Um, and the falling, that's all practical, right? Uh, but... Uh, but then, like, the snow is CGI. It's just it's yeah, weird what they right. did sometimes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. It's, you know, it's. I think it's... From a, from a visual effects standpoint, I think it's a really good movie. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, you know... Which is maybe not something you'd expect from from the sort of movie. Well, Certainly I, but not from the a, thing is, from right, a, is that... From a visual... Sturge's pastiche, it's not a... Not a visual effects masterpiece. Right, right? but what they are trying to do very clearly is by... Part of the reason that you use so much practical model work, right, and, and like, matte painting type stuff is that that is evocative of films of the 30s or something like that that they are trying to to pastiche, right? Like, even though those are not necessarily visual effects masterpieces, the fact that you're pastiching a thing, a style of film that's not made anymore, makes this into a sort of visual masterpiece, right? Because you're like, oh, like... Now I'm showing people what, you know, I'm calling to mind a style of film that just straight up doesn't exist anymore. Uh, we don't make movies like that anymore. Right, um, 100%. And that's, and that's neat. Like, I, the, visual, the visual style of the movie is impeccable, and I love it. It's just also probably the reason why the movie cost $25 million to make and uh, right. couldn't make its money back, right? Like that's, and that's Paul Newman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah Paul, Paul Newman's certainly. expensive, right? Um, my favorite moment of Paul Newman is uh, him uh, about to, uh, or when the clock stops, his face he has just like yeah. smoking the cigar and his uh, just big smile and his eyes are all lit up. Love that. I, I do love Paul Newman as a, as a bad guy. It is a, it is always mm-hmm. a, it's always a treat. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's just a treat. It's a, uh, this movie's a tis treat. It is a treat, a Christmas yeah, treat. Yeah, I mean, I would a... never, like, this is not, like, I, I I leveled some complaints, but, like, I love this movie. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. And I think, like know. I said, it, it's worn a little thin on me at this point as I've gotten, as I've seen it so many times and I'm older than I was when I saw it in the beginning. Like, it's, I do get a little tired of the pastiche by the time it's over. I'm like, okay, I get yeah. it, guys. And I, I got to admit, you know, if you force me to rank all 18 Coen Brothers movies or 19 or 20, whatever we're at now, uh, it would probably be closer to the bottom of my list than, than the top just because there's so much so much stuff to put at the top. Mm-hmm. But but not because I disliked it. I didn't really even dislike Lady Killers. Like, people complain about Lady Killers and, and this and, and uh, Intolerable Cruelty. Yes. Cruelty is one that ends up at the bottom, too, which, you know. Uh, it's been so long since I've seen that. I don't certainly didn't know it was a Coen Brothers when I watched it. But, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, so that one, I'm, I'm sure that would be 
toward the bottom of my list too. But uh, but yeah, this is an this is a fun movie. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, it's a Coen Brothers movie, therefore I could probably always watch it. <laughs> right, I, I mean, right. like, uh, again, this one, uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, Hail Caesar, are some of my favorites of theirs. I would say, for me, I kind of like those movies more than I like Fargo or The Big Lebowski. I like Raising Arizona, you know, it was way up there for me. I kind of like their more out-there stuff, you know, and um, when they go as far as they can with you know, different things. And, um, I think this one hits those points a lot. I think it hits the, the mark many, many times when I find myself just laughing and feeling very delighted that it exists and has done the way it's done. So, and that's how I like to feel when I watch a Coen brothers movie that I right. just get a big smile on my face right. for the decisions that they make. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true here. Uh, it's good. Hooray! Hooray for being good. Mm. Ah, well, I think we could probably uh, stop talking about Hut Circle Proxy if we wanted to. Do we want to? I mean, I find it. I think we've said, I, I have personally said basically everything I have to say about the movie. Well, good. Good. Uh, he, I, I also like it when uh, Norville says, um, wait, Norville, right? Yeah. Norville says uh, uh, the prizelets or pole. Instead of the the Pulitzer Prize when he is too drunk to say anything. Yeah, great lines, Mm -hmm. lots of great lines. Yeah, the you know the I think the the uh, the mailroom more than anything is is what pulls from Brazil. Brazil, Uh, it's the mailroom. Yes, exactly. I would say that yes, that is definitely true. But like even the giant like the the giant office barren office space it it all has yeah. a sort of vibe of the, brazil right like the the like, scale of the desolation of uh uh fascist capitalism <laughs> uh architecture is true in brazil and and right. true here uh yeah again i just you know i don't i don't get the feeling and i think it's there are times when the Coen brothers are obviously trying to say something. Yes. And there are times like this where they're not really trying to they're say something. They're just right. having a romp. And they're just having a romp. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is one of their romps that actually has a plot <laughs> through it. That's true. Like, like Inside Lewin Davis is a romp. doesn't really have a plot. And I love, uh, and I love that it. movie. I love that That's movie. what I'm saying. Those, those movies are my favorite of theirs. Yeah. They are the, you know, like... When 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 writing songs, you know, like that's the main thing I've done my whole life. And when I was younger, I just tried to make every song the best song, and it had to have every moment I would want in a song. And then I think I heard like Kid A by Radiohead, and I was like, oh, you <laughs> yeah. can just like express one idea, yeah, like over and over, or like just something that falls off before it resolves. And I like it when when people do that, where it doesn't have to be the the ultimate of its kind it can be some kind of weird little uh, sketch you yeah. know i like that john simon of the national review described the hudsucker proxy as asinine and insufferable that's funny uh, and that is funny i see that's a that was my point though right like there's an equal number of people who literally loathe this movie and that's fascinating yeah. to me as well right there's a fascinating like 
I, I, you know, it's not my favorite. I do like it, but like, yeah. it's interesting that there's an equal number of people who just fucking like hated hated this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I would love I mean? to That's see interesting. Critic, I would love to see some uh, uh, critiques of uh, the Sandlot <laughs> and see how many like people are like asinine and insufferable. Listen, listen. The Sandlot, just a simple the Sandlot was it's. A particular thing that was not a Coen Brothers film. So all right. I'm I'm saying that how many things people right. like cherish. Yeah. You know that's a universally one. So that's why I'm making that right, my right, point right, right, right now. Right. But how many things that are cherished by one person or another have been, you know, stated to be the most like right. blithering, nonsensical thing? And it's like right. really, I based my life on this idea. Uh, Am I blithering and nonsensical? That's true. That's true. Well, it is, uh, it is the holiday season, and as the holiday season, we invite our friends around, and unfortunately, only one friend came around. Yeah, we don't, we, we're, was, we're, we're slowly okay. running out of friends. They've all been running out of severely friends. turned but, off by the fact that we continue to do this podcast. <laughs> I didn't break my arm or hurt my back or right? go yes. to sleep, yes. so I'm the winner. You win. <laughs> You win, you win the holidays this year. Yeah, congratulations! I'm, I'm, the Christmas cookies. I'm fascinated by the idea that maybe this want. is cursed. We're 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 no. injuring people by inviting them on. That, like that this this year particularly maybe is cursed. I don't yeah. know. The audio uh, was we sure should cursed. we should have done our original plan, Adam. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. Uh, but, but I think you're right. Yeah, since you're the only one here, Jonathan, uh, let's let you. Spend as much time as you want plugging anything you want to plug. Sweet. All right. Cool. Uh, January- okay. That's like, thank you very much. Yeah. No, All right. No, Have go, a good one. Go ahead. Goodbye. Um, uh, January 13th, 2013. Uh, 2013. What? 2023. Uh, my dad and I are releasing an album. Um, it is an album that I wrote and recorded. And then my dad put bass and guitar and vocals on. We're doing some shows for that, but it will be available everywhere. It is called Was Was. Again, January 13th, Was Was, new album. That is on jonathan-hape.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-H-A-P-E.com. Cool, cool, cool. I got to make sure that uh, I say the right, right web address in the outro stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> for the closing credits. I think I send them to your band camp now anyway. I used to send them to jonathanhape.com when you own Jonathan right. Hape with no dash. Before it was nothing. Yeah. yeah. And then something terrible. Yeah. Is it something terrible now? I actually haven't. It was. It was an Asian porn site for a while. <laughs> I did not what? know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. How what, exciting. A, what an odd. What? What? How does that make sense? And then sense? I know, and I've tried to buy it back, and it's like two hundred thousand dollars or something because I'm <laughs> I'm the only Jonathan Hape. Yeah. So if you look me up, I'm the only one that comes up. So it's hyper specific. I'm the person yeah. that needs the website. So yeah. it's been withheld, and I've even tried to email. You could um, you could maybe pursue legal action because like there's like that whole like squatting on the name of like real people thing. It is like yeah. the judges will sometimes. It's going to be expensive legal action too. So it's like right, right. One half a dozen, the other. But, but yeah, I just put the hyphen in there. We're all square. Plus, out. again, you type in my name to Google. I'm the only one. All of it comes up. So yeah. it's all good. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, we do like to close off these holiday specials by thanking all of our current Patreon supporters. Uh, so thank you to everybody. Uh, as we close out 2022 with Zombie Manos, Tracy McGrath, Robert. Stephen Goldmeyer, Perry Sacchini, Nina Bajnak, Patrick Yako, Catherine Connell, Eric Coronado, Jason Westhaver, Chris Otto, 
Andrew Jarrett, Adam Speakerman, and Andrew Lemoyne. Uh, so grateful for your Patreon support. Help keep us going. If you want to join them, head over to patreon.com slash lost in criterion. And uh, yeah, for just a, as low as dollar a month, you can support us. And we greatly appreciate all that. Uh, everyone who does and everyone who heads over to Redbubble and looks up Lost in Criterion and buys stuff through there. Redbubble finally sent us our first payment uh, <laughs> because because the general war on Redbubble, according to their terms of service, is they won't give you a payment until you brought in more than $20. Uh, but also, apparently, there's a time limit on that because we hit $5.84 and they're sending me they're sending me a payment over the course of the next few days is how the email order. <laughs> like, so several I, payments I, over I, the course? That's very my understanding. We don't know. Don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. It. It is ridiculous anyway, to consider we never, the possibility they'll send us like a dollar a day for a right, week. Right, right. We know we we have our margins on Redbubble set so low. We never intended it to be a money making prospect. It is a way for people to view and purchase if they want to Pat's art right. from the postcards. And we're very grateful to everyone who has that. That five dollars and eighty four cents actually does represent uh, dozens of orders. Uh, so, uh, so we definitely yeah, appreciate. Very happy that. Yeah, absolutely. Very happy for everyone who has been there, and very happy for everyone who has listened. Thank you so much for listening. This week we've been talking about Hudsucker Proxy as our final show of 2020, our holiday special. Next week we're going to kick off the new year with something special as very well. Very special. Uh, Patreon supporters have been. Uh, voting on a movie from the first 100 spines for uh, Pat and I to revisit uh, as our 10th anniversary special. The first episode of 2023 marks 10 years that we have been doing this podcast. It's going to be sallow, right? It is not, unfortunately. Enough of the Patreon supporters themselves told me that they would not vote for sallow. That we didn't end up putting it on the list. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, I, uh, but I really don't know what it's going to be yet because the voting is still open as of our recording. It will be closed by the time this episode goes out, but it is still open with the recording. So that's going to be a publicly available episode. It will be next week's episode, and then after that, we'll finish up the rest of the Josef von Sternberg box set and look forward to that as well. Thank you so much for listening. I am, as always, the Adam Glass with me as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and joining us special for our holiday episode, Jonathan Hape. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. 
My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.